you have a copy of God's Word, please turn in it to 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll be this morning in chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. We're nearing the end of our series in this precious book. We come this morning to 1 Peter 5, we'll look at verses 5 through 7. No promises, but it appears we only have two or three more messages in this book as we finish the final chapter. But please look with me this morning at 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 5 and reading through verse 7. I'll begin in the second half of verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Can we pray once more? Let's pray together. Lord, please help us now, and please come and instruct us and teach us in Your Word. We look to Christ, the Chief Shepherd to shepherd the flock, to feed us on knowledge and understanding. Come now as we consider these verses written by your servant Peter under the inspiration of your spirit. Please come and minister to us. Show us the truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, as I expound this passage this morning, 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7, I'd like to speak on a subject that I think has all but vanished, really, from the consciousness of the wider culture, uh, from public dialogue, from educational institutions, from households, and even from modern vocabulary altogether. I will speak this morning on the subject of humility, uh, particularly humility as it is presented to us here in 1 Peter chapter 5. Throughout the centuries, even as recently as just a generation or two ago, Humility would have been esteemed as one of the greatest of the virtues. In both Western and Eastern traditions, certainly in any culture, influenced by Judeo-Christian values, in private households, in schools, in universities, humility has been regarded as a virtue almost universally praiseworthy. But if you think about it today in our culture, you can grow up, graduate from school, Go to college, enter the workforce, get married, have kids, live your 70 or 80 years, and at no point be positively encouraged to pursue humility or to see humility as something commendable. The notion that humility is praiseworthy, as something to be pursued, as something to be treasured and cherished, I would argue, has practically vanished from our culture. In school, in sports, in the celebrity world, in politics, in public service, in the workforce, humility is not only in short supply, it has virtually no demand in our day. And if you spend just a moment's time reflecting on our culture and on what humility actually is, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it, why humility is not prized in our day. So I just looked at the dictionary app on my computer, it's the new Oxford American Dictionary, defines humility in this way, 
Humility is a modest or low view of one's own importance. Humility, according to the New Oxford American Dictionary, is a modest or low view of one's own importance. Now, I ask you who in America today would embrace that as something laudable and virtuous? We are obsessed with our own importance. And many think a commitment to our own importance is actually evidence of virtue, that the virtuous thing is to view yourself as highly as you can, to possess the highest possible self-esteem, and to have a lower view of yourself, well, that's a contemptible idea and certainly shouldn't be regarded as something virtuous, something to be praised. Well, what does God have to say about all of this? To all of you here who know the Scriptures, hopefully you know, certainly you know, that in the Bible, humility is seen as one of the greatest and godliest of character traits. Humility in the Bible is commended again and again and again, both in the Old and New Testament. Now, I think most of us know what we're talking about when we talk about humility. Peter seems to assume his audience knows what he's talking about. He doesn't bother to define what humility is when he calls them to be humble. But I think it's worth trying to define the phrase, if for no other reason than that it's not talked about in our day and age, and it's not something we're instructed in and taught in our world today. One author helpfully defines humility in this way. He says, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. I think that's a good short definition. Humility is assessing ourselves honestly in the light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Humility, therefore, in the first place is looking to God understanding that He alone is the Creator. He alone is God. He alone is holy, worthy of all praise and worship, and that He alone is our Redeemer, and that we, finite creatures, depend on Him. We look to Him. Humility is seeing God as He is and living in the light of this reality. It's seeing that He is the Lord. He is our Creator. He alone is our Redeemer. But it's not just a right view of God. Humility also requires an accurate understanding of who we are. Humility recognizes that we are not God. We, as creatures, are finite and contingent and fallible. Humility recognizes that He is God and we are not. Humility recognizes that we are sinners every day and at all times in need of grace. And furthermore, that we are far more sinful, far more fragile and failing and finite than we care to think. Humility does not view oneself highly, but rather recognizes that we are sinful creatures of dust and we depend only and always on the grace of God. A great summary that I think brings together humility in terms of properly assessing who God is and properly assessing who we are is given to us in Psalm 131. And there David says this, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. He assesses himself rightly, humbly before God. And he says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. 
Humility has a proper understanding of our station before God. And friends, this inevitably involves for us a downgrade in our assessment of ourselves. There's a famous quote about humility. It's often mistakenly attributed to C.S. Lewis, though I don't think he actually said it. It was another author that said it in a very popular book. And that definition goes like this. Humility is not so much thinking less about yourself, but thinking about yourself less. Humility is not so much thinking less about yourself, but thinking about yourself less. Now, that's a very quaint and punchy quote. It's also dead wrong. Humility in the Bible always demands that we make a lower assessment of ourselves. It's not self-loathing and self-hate, exactly, but it is recognizing we are not as hot as we think we are. We're not as great as we think we are. And if we are to receive spirit-wrought humility, it will inevitably, in all of us, involve a downgrade of our assessment of ourselves. I assure you, my friend, if you wake up tomorrow a little less impressed with yourself, that is the work of humility. It involves that we understand our station as sinners in need of the grace of God. We understand ourselves as fallible and weak and in need of the grace of God, our Creator, and our Redeemer. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in the light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Well, now we're prepared, I think, to consider what Peter tells us here about humility in our passage in 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. We'll consider this passage under two main headings this morning. We'll consider first a call for humility toward our brothers and sisters, and a call, secondly, for humility toward God. We'll consider a call for humility toward our brothers and sisters, that's one another in the family of God, and then secondly, a call for humility toward God Himself. Consider with me first a call for humility toward our brothers and sisters. Look with me again at verse 5. There Peter writes, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. A few observations about this verse, three in particular. First of all, what is the exhortation itself? What's the command given? Very simply, we're told to clothe ourselves, all of us, with humility. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. It's a beautiful image, the way Peter conveys it. It's the image of putting on humility like a garment or a robe. To clothe oneself in humility would mean to live day by day, hour by hour in humility, to walk in humility. Just like you clothe yourself in the morning with your clothes, you get up, maybe you put on your robe, some of you, or maybe the first thing you do is take a shower, then you put on your clothes for the day. Peter's saying clothe yourselves, put on like a robe or like your clothes for the day, the virtue, the character trait of humility. We are to live day by day in humility. Humility is to pervade our lives as the people of God. Peter is saying, let your whole life be marked by humility. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. A second observation, the humility with which we're to clothe ourselves, at least in verse 5, is directed toward a certain group. To clothe ourselves with humility toward, the verse says, toward one another. Clothe yourselves, put on humility like a garment. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And in the context that we've been considering, I think that now Peter's been focusing predominantly on the family of God, 
the audience to whom he's writing, and he's saying, in our relationships with one another, we're to clothe ourselves with humility toward each other. Well, what would this kind of humility look like, to be humble with regard to our brothers and sisters in the church? Well, humility, when directed toward another person, is to assess the other person's desires, his or her interests, and needs as more important than our own. It is to esteem the interest of others not only as equal and on par with our interests, but actually as more important than our own interests. So humility is bound up in prizing the interests of others more highly than our own interests. Humility toward others' labors for the good of the other and for the edification and well-being of the other. Humility at times requires us to take a posture of a servant toward others. We lower ourselves in terms of our sense of rank before that person. We humble ourselves and we serve others in humility, counting their needs, their interests as more significant than our own. There are many texts that we can cite that illustrate this point, that this is a function of humility when it extends to our relationships with one another. One that immediately comes to mind is John 13. You don't need to turn there. But if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, in John 13, we have the beginning of what is known as the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus has gathered with His disciples. The section opens in verse 1, uh, saying that having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And what does Jesus do at the beginning of that Last Supper, that gathering there in the Upper Room? Well, we read in John 13 that He takes off His outer garment, He puts on a waistband, He takes the towel he kneels, and he washes the feet of his disciples. He takes the posture of humility. He takes the posture of a servant, seeing himself as one who's serving others and prioritizing and prizing their needs and their interests more than his own. And, and Peter is so offended by this because he recognizes that the Lord is so much greater in rank than him, he thinks this is inappropriate. That he, the Lord, someone with more power, more authority, one who is in fact the teacher, ranks higher in rank, that he would stoop down and wash their feet. But what does Jesus say? In verse 15, he says, I'm setting an example for you to follow. In other words, we, in our relationships with one another, are to take the posture of servants toward one another. We are to condescend and to stoop down and to take the posture of lowliness and humility. We are, in our relationships with one another, to assume the posture of servants toward one another, as esteeming one another's needs and desires more highly than our own, so much so that we would, the image is in John 13, wash one another's feet. Probably, though, the preeminent passage in the New Testament on humility is in Philippians 2. I want to ask you to turn there. So turn just a few books back in your New Testaments to Philippians 2, and here we're given a fuller picture of what humility looks like. This now not from the Lord actually acting out an example, but now Paul reflecting on what humility is and reflecting now on the death of Jesus and its implications for us and our relationships with one another. Notice here what Paul says about humility and what it entails in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. He tells the Christians at Philippi, Philippians 2 verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
have this mind among yourselves or in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. And the idea is, you know, Paul's saying that, that Jesus' humility is seen in that he would condescend and take on human flesh, that that was the supreme act of humility. But it goes further than that. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what Paul says that we're supposed to do in our relationship with others in the church. It's not just that I think about you more and myself less. It is apparently, according to verse 3, that I am to make an estimation, an assessment. I'm to do some accounting, and I'm actually to count your interests more significant than my own. Paul's saying this is not a plea for a kind of egalitarianism in the church. All right, we all get exactly the same thing, and my job is to make things as even as possible. No, Paul says the Christian attitude, the humble attitude, the mind of Christ, which we're to have in ourselves, is we actually view others, we count others, we reckon others to be more significant than we are. We count their needs, their desires, their interests, their burdens as more significant than our own. Our attitude toward our brothers and sisters in the church should be these people around me, my brothers and sisters here, I count them as more significant than myself. I regard their needs as more significant than my needs. I esteem their interests more highly than my own. And listen, brothers and sisters, this attitude, when properly and consistently applied across an entire church body, makes for a happy church. When we live this way, all of us in our relationships, toward one another, this makes for a happy and healthy church. When all of us take that Romans 12.10 attitude toward one another, where Paul says we're to outdo one another in showing honor. We're trying to honor one another with this sort of holy competition. Who can serve the other more? Who can take more of a posture of humility toward the other and be a servant to the other and honor the other more? We're to outdo one another in showing honor. This, friends, is what it means to be clothed in humility toward one another, everyone esteeming others more highly than themselves. And this, perhaps more than anything else in a local church, it roots out division and strife, it roots out rivalries and bitterness and spiritual pride and gossip and backbiting and all kinds of other sins. This kind of humility in our relationships with one another, the kind of humility that counts others more significant than ourselves makes for a happy and healthy church, a church in which the members are not competitors, they're not rivals, they're not insisting on fairness in every interaction. Rather, every member thinks of the person next to him, next to her, as more significant than themselves, where every member is eager to promote the interests and the well-being and the edification of others more than their own interests. That's what it means, I think, to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another, to esteem one another more highly than ourselves. Third and final observation about verse 5, you'll notice in verse 5 we have an incentive given. There's a particular incentive Peter focuses on to encourage us, to move us toward humility in our relationships with one another. Peter says, 
And in the ESV, most translations, it'll be in quotes. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, which is a paraphrase of Proverbs 3, verse 34. So we have here a warning and then a blessed promise. And the warning and the promise together are to, like, like pincers, drive us, incentivize us, motivate us toward pursuing humility in our relationships with one another. First of all, the warning. We read, God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. It could be translated, God resists the proud. You'll notice it doesn't say that God is indifferent toward the proud. It doesn't say that God refuses grace to the proud. So He's giving grace, and here's some proud people, so He just passes them over. No, it says God opposes, God resists the proud. And friends, there's simply nothing worse that can befall a person than to be opposed by God, to be resisted by God, because when God opposes you, you lose. The word for oppose is a strong word. One definition of the original Greek word is to array oneself in battle against a foe. That's the word that we have here for God's posture toward the proud. For those who are proud, God is not with them, and He is not for them. He is against them. They invite His opposition, His resistance, and His wrath. And friends, that should be sufficient enough warning for all of us to endeavor with all urgency to forsake and mortify pride and to pursue humility before the Lord. The prideful person is to, ha- to excuse me, to be a prideful person is to have God as your enemy. You live in pride, you refuse to humble yourself, God is your adversary. God is your enemy. God opposes and resists you. God does not dwell with proud people. He doesn't give grace to proud people. He doesn't draw near to proud people. He opposes them. I just want to give just a pastoral encouragement at this point. There may be some here among us, Christians here, and you recognize that you struggle in maybe a special way with the sin of pride. We speak sometimes of our besetting sins, sins that we might have a more intense struggle with, sins that we struggle to mortify. Perhaps you have, by God's grace, been given the self-knowledge of yourself to assess, you know what, I know I struggle with pride. I can see, I mean, all of us struggle with pride, but, but, but we don't always see it, but God has shown you, you struggle with pride. Let me encourage you with all seriousness and urgency to mortify pride. We should have this posture, I don't want to be God's enemy. I don't want to be opposed by God. I need to put this pride to death, and I need to take this very seriously because God opposes proud people. He calls me to humility. And I just want to encourage you before the Lord, you can thank Him for this warning that He's given you. And you should use this in your fight against mortifying pride, your fight against this terrible sin. I want to live in communion with God. I want to be His happy child. I want to be humble before the Lord. I don't want His wrath and His opposition. I'm going to fight by God's grace to mortify pride in my life. But there's not just a warning here. There is a warning here, but there's not just a warning here. There's a wonderful promise. God opposes the proud, yes, but then there's the sweet promise. God gives grace to the humble. 
God gives grace to the humble. He meets with the humble. He loves the humble. He draws near to the humble. Isaiah 57, verse 15, thus says, The Holy One who is high and lifted up, whose name is holy, who inhabits eternity, I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with Him who is of a lowly and contrite spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. This is the one to whom I will look, the Lord says in Isaiah 66. The one who fears the Lord is of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. God draws near to humble people, which means that if we feel penitence and brokenness over our sin, if we recognize that we are finite, we're creatures of dust, we're in need of God at all times and every day, the sweet promise of this passage is that God will draw near to you and He'll supply grace to you. He resists the proud, but He's eager to pour out grace on humble people. That should be a great encouragement to any here who feel themselves to be sinners, who feel themselves in need of grace, who know that they depend at all times on the Lord, God will receive you. And He's eager to shower His grace and His love and His compassion on you. If you draw near to Him, He will draw near to you and make His grace known to you. Brother, sister, allow this to provide every incentive for you to pursue humility before others in the church, before your spouse, certainly before God. Because if you are humble, God is with you, and He brings His grace to you. What greater incentive could we have to pursue humility in our relationships with one another? That's the first point, a call for humility toward our brothers and sisters. Consider with me secondly now, Peter's call for humility toward God. So that, that warning and promise given at the end of verse 5, it sort of swings into verse 6. It applies also now to what Peter will say about the humility we're to have, particularly now before God Himself. Verse 6 says, humble yourselves therefore, I think that means in light of this warning and this promise, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Again, a few observations, three observations in particular. First of all, notice the call again is to humble ourselves, but the focus now is on humbling ourselves in relation to God and His providence in our lives. Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, which I think means humble yourselves under God's providence, God's hand in the Scriptures so often is His hand of providence, the hand by which He is directing not only the course of history but the events of our lives down to the very detail. God's hand is directing every detail about your life, good and bad. Nothing happens in our lives apart from the decree of God, apart from His providential leading. God is in control over every atom of that baby growing inside your womb, pregnant mothers. And God is in control over every atom of cancer that is forming even now in some of our bodies that we don't yet know about. God's providence is over everything. His mighty hand is regulating all that befalls us, indeed all the course of human history. And the call here is that we would humble ourselves under God's providence, under God's mighty hand. 
Well, Peter has documented already in this book, and if you've been with us, maybe some things already come to mind of challenging circumstances that were present in the lives of these Christians to whom Peter is writing. Challenges and trials, various forms of suffering that they were experiencing. The lives of these Christians, no doubt, would not have been easy. They're identified as sojourners and exiles in a hostile world that is not their home, and they are up against immense challenges. The lives God had called them to live involve suffering for righteousness' sake, carrying the cross and following Jesus, mortifying sin and living for the will of God in the present age. And so he calls here to these saints for the humble recognition that their lives and all their circumstances down to every last detail, including the opposition they face, all their lives, all their circumstances are shaped and guided by the hand of God. They are under His mighty hand as He works out His purposes for them. And their response to being under God's mighty hand is not to be unrest or anxiety or fearful panic, but a humble resting under His sovereign hand recognizing that that which is sown in pain and hardship will be reaped in joy. For a little while we suffer, but not forever. Now is the time to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, under God's providence in our lives, trusting Him that He has our good in mind, so that at the proper time, as we humble ourselves under His hand, He may exalt us. Being under God's mighty hand, brothers and sisters, is being under His providence, which may include suffering and difficult circumstances and various challenges. But there's to be this recognition from all of us. These things, however dark they may be, that try our faith, that cause at times so much pain in our lives, whatever these things may be, they have come to us. They are in our lives through the mighty hand of God and through His promises. He is the one in control of my circumstances. So I'm going to receive what He sends. As we sing in one of our songs, I will take content what he has sent. I recognize God's hand is orchestrating all the events of my life, all the providences of my life, and therefore I will submit to his sovereign care and sovereign rule. I will not buck up under his providence. Rather, I will humble myself under the mighty hand of God. I think this is exactly what David says in Psalm 131. My heart's not lifted up. I'm not concerning myself with things too great for me. I'm wondering why my circumstances are what they are. I don't exactly understand them. Here's what I'm going to do. I'll still and quiet my soul like a weaned child with its mother. That picture of a weaned child. A child that is not weaned is fussy and anxious. The weaned child on his mother's lap wants milk, wants it now, cries out for it. The weaned child, though, is content. The weaned child just sitting on his mother's lap trusting that mom's got this, right? David says that's the posture of humility. Similarly, we, as we hear these words from 1 Peter 5, we're to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, trusting God. It's all in his hands. He directs the course of our lives. That's the humble posture toward God that is required by this text. Second observation, verses 6 and 7, we're told to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, and there's a purpose given, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. We're under His hand, humbling ourselves, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. 
Now, there's a few ways we could understand this idea, the idea that we're humbled now that He might exalt us. Some take this passage to mean that sometimes in life we have to humble ourselves, and God is humbling us in certain times, but in our lives, if we humble ourselves and we pray and we wait on the Lord, there will come a time in life where He will vindicate us in certain situations. So you find yourself being misunderstood or being falsely accused or something's going on. You think, I I should humble myself under God's mighty hand. The time is going to come where He will exalt me. Okay, that happens sometimes in life. And in particular points, the Lord does bring that about. I don't think, though, that's what Peter's talking about here. A second way some understand this passage is to say that like, as we humble ourselves before the Lord, as we humble ourselves, God exalts us like spiritually, exalts us in terms of relationship with Him. So it would be kind of the idea of that passage I referenced a moment ago in Isaiah 57, verse 15. Uh, God draws near to the lowly and the contrite to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite, that as we humble ourselves, God will exalt us in terms of relationship and spiritual access to Him and things like that. Blessedly true, that is true. We humble ourselves, God will give us grace. And in a sense, I suppose that can be equated with this exalting. Again, I don't think that's what Peter is talking about here. That's true, but I don't think what Peter means here. I think the basic idea in light of what we've seen in 1 Peter so far is the idea that God will exalt us on the last day. God is going to exalt His people when the Lord Jesus appears, when when that glory that we're now made partakers of, when it is revealed. When we have our inheritance, when the last day comes, there will be an end to our suffering and our pilgrimage and our sojourn as exiles in this world. We humble ourselves now knowing that God will exalt us then, when we are raised with Christ and we receive our inheritance and the glory that is to be revealed. I think that fits better with what we've seen in 1 Peter so far. We sojourn, we are exiles, we live in this world in a hostile environment under God's mighty hand. There's coming a day, though. As we wait on the Lord, there is coming a day when He will exalt us, when Christ appears. Now is the age of humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We embrace suffering and hardship and the hostility of the world now. We take up our cross, we mortify our sin, we accept the difficult circumstances knowing that God is in control of all things and that He is refining and sanctifying us through it all. We are to humble ourselves under His mighty hand, knowing that the time is coming. And friends, it's not far off when He will exalt us. He will lift us up. There is coming a new day, and the suffering and sorrows of this life will be no more. The call to persevere through hardship, through hostility, through opposition, that call will expire one day. There will no longer be a need to persevere and to sojourn because we will be with Him forever, and then He will exalt us. He will lift us up. He will raise us up. All right, third and final observation, and then we'll be done. Third and final observation under this second point. Peter, having called these Christians to humility before the Lord, then states one of the functions of humility in relation to God in verse 7. This is how the verse is constructed. There's the call to humility before God. We're to humble ourselves under His mighty hands so that He would exalt us. And then we're told one of the functions of humility. In other words, what it is that humility does. 
So look again at verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. So I think it works this way. Humble yourselves. One of the ways you do that is by casting your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. In other words, what does humility do? What does a humble trust in the sovereign, providential care of God do? How do we humble ourselves before God? Answer, verse 7, by casting all our anxieties, all our worries on Him because He cares for you. In other words, refusing to worry or to give in to anxiety is here understood to be a function of humility which means the opposite is true. Giving in to worry and anxiety is understood to be a function of pride and is sin in God's eyes. But the humble, those who have humbled themselves under God's mighty hand, well, for them, they cast their anxieties upon the Lord, knowing that He cares for them. Now, I want to be careful here. Because we live in a very anxious age, sociological data would indicate that anxiety is at an all-time high. Many people report struggles with anxiety, take medication for anxiety. Many Christians struggle with anxiety. In a sense, we all struggle with anxiety and worry, and therefore we have to have a proper understanding of it if we're to address anxiety appropriately. So I want to make a couple of very important distinctions, okay? couple distinctions that I think will help us get to the root of Peter's meaning here. I think there are basically three types of anxiety that the Bible would recognize. Three types of anxiety, and I want to distinguish between these three. The first two I don't think are sinful. The third one is sinful, and I think it's the kind of anxiety Peter's talking about in our passage, okay? All right, the first kind of anxiety the Bible speaks occasionally of a kind of holy anxiety. So the word that is used here in our passage for anxiety, which is a bad thing that we're supposed to get rid of and cast upon the Lord, is used in other places to describe something that actually is, it seems to be, commendable. So Paul commends Timothy in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20. He's sending them to the church at Philippi. And he has this confidence in Timothy as he commends Timothy that I have no one who will be as eagerly anxious or earnestly anxious or concerned for your well-being. What is Paul saying? He cares about you. Timothy loves you. He's anxious that you would do well and that your faith would be strong and that you would be whole and that you would be mature. He's anxious for your well-being. And Paul seems to commend that. It's a kind of holy anxiety. Paul, I think it's in 2 Corinthians 11-ish, says that he has this kind of anxiety for all the churches. Again, I don't think he's confessing sin there. I think he's talking about a holy burden God has given him for the well-being of the saints. And so you may have holy anxieties. You may have a kind of sanctified anxiety for the health of this church body. You may have a sanctified anxiety for the salvation of one of your children or your parents or something like that. There's such a thing as a holy kind of anxiety that I don't think is sin. Okay, a second kind of anxiety, and this would be hard for me to show like examples of this in the Scripture, but I think it's a real thing, and that is a kind of anxiety that is the result 
largely or of nothing more than a kind of physiological breakdown or disorder. A kind of anxiety that's like a physiological breakdown. So this is not like worry about the future, but it's, it's a kind of physical breakdown. So in, in a couple of situations in my life, I've had uh, what could be called panic attacks. And those panic attacks, in each instance that I can remember, were produced by some kind of trauma. Some kind of physical trauma where physical things overwhelmed me and there was an anxiety, a natural sort of human anxiety that was produced. I don't think that kind of anxiety was sinful. A result of the fall, certainly. I don't think it was sinful. I had a friend who struggled with claustrophobia. And literally what would happen to him if he was in certain settings, his lungs would stop functioning properly. It's totally irrational, but his body would just kind of shut down in certain contexts. It was this physiological sort of reaction that was taking place. You might know post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, a kind of physical trauma that brings about a sort of human, physical, unbeckoned kind of physiological breakdown. Okay, that's a kind of anxiety that I think is out there and that we see in some places in Scripture, but I don't think it's the result of sin. Certainly a result of the fall, but I don't think it's an expression of sin. Okay, with those two behind us, there's the general way the Bible speaks of anxiety. Almost every reference to anxiety in the Bible is referring to sinful anxiety, sinful worry. And, and sinful anxiety is essentially a sort of inordinate worry and concern about the future, that I'm not going to have what I need, or I'm not going to have what I want. And it's anxiety produced looking into the future at something we want or something we think we need that we're not going to have. That's the basic way I think the Lord speaks about anxiety in the Sermon on the Mount. He says that we're to be anxious for nothing, and he points to the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, and he says, I I keep taking care of them. The birds have something to eat. The flowers have clothing. They, They appear in their brightness and their glory. You're more precious than sparrows. You're more precious than flowers. I will provide for you. There's no need to be anxious about the future. I care for you. Anxiety in that setting is worry about the future, inordinate concern. Am I going to have my provision? Am I going to have what I need? It could be worry over circumstances, worry over money, worry over our relationships, worry worry over all kinds of things. That is the general way the Bible speaks about anxiety, and it is an anxiety that is understood to be sinful. Jerry Bridges has a very excellent book called Respectable Sins. And in that book, he has a very excellent chapter on the subject of anxiety. And in that chapter, he suggests there are two things that make anxiety especially sinful. Two things in particular that are especially sinful about anxiety. He says, first of all, anxiety reflects distrust of God. Why is anxiety so sinful? Because it reflects a certain distrust of God. God, I can't trust you with future I can't trust your mighty hand to provide for my needs, to take care of me. I can't trust that you'll be with me. I I can't trust you, so I'm going to be anxious, and I'm going to carry these burdens myself because I can't trust that you're actually going to provide and going to take care of me, which, if you think about it, is a very heinous wickedness to distrust God and His provision and His providence in our lives. But there's a second thing that can make anxiety sinful. And that is not just a distrust of God that He will give us what we need. It can also be a discontentedness and a dissatisfaction with what He does give us. 
a discontentedness and a dissatisfaction with His providence in our lives. The concern here is not anxiety over the fact that I may not have what I need, it's that I won't have what I want. So God is leading in a certain way in your life, and you're thinking, you know, I really had this dream, I had this expectation, it's not appearing, that's going to pan out, I'm going to be anxious about it. Because I don't trust when I get there in God's providence, when He leads me down this path, that I'm going to be happy there. And so I have anxiety about it. It could be anxiety over whether or not you'll be married. It could be anxiety over whether or not you'll ever have a family. It could be anxiety over career things and all of that. But at the root of it, Bridget says, can be a discontentedness and a sinful dissatisfaction with God's leading in our lives. I appreciate what Ed Welch has said in his book, Running Scared. He says, worry or anxiety is a stealth sin. It doesn't feel like sin. You may have noticed that in, in our culture, in our climate. If someone uh, confesses that they're anxious, immediately a certain sort of sympathy and pity flows out of us. You know, that, oh, that's a sign of weakness, that's a sign of humility, you know, and, and we are very tender towards such people. Well, we should be tender towards such people, but there should be the recognition that anxiety is acknowledged in the Bible as sin. It may not feel like sin, it might even feel like you're being humble somehow, but here in our passage, Peter says it's a function of pride. It's not humble to be anxious. It's not humble to worry. It's prideful to worry. At the root of our anxiety is a kind of pride. Well, how is it a function of pride? I appreciate what New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner has said about this. Tom Schreiner, who our brother Zach Dupree had dinner with a few nights ago up in Louisville. Tom Schreiner says this, worry is a form of pride because when believers are filled with anxiety, they are convinced that they solve all the problems in their lives in their own strength. The only God they trust is themselves. When believers throw their worries upon God, they express their trust in His mighty hand, acknowledging that He is Lord and sovereign over all of life. He says again, worry constitutes pride since it denies the care of a sovereign God. The idea in 1 Peter 5, 7 is that we should take all of our cares, all of our sinful worries, all of our sinful distrust of God, our prideful efforts at trying to command and control the circumstances of our lives, and Peter is saying we're to let go of all of it. We're to release our anxieties and our cares. We're to cast those cares and worries on the Lord. We're to put them on Him. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Trust Him. Believe Him. Embrace His providence and His sovereignty and cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. That language of casting anxieties, again, it's a decisive kind of action. It is to throw off or to pass on or to, like, to hurl something into the air, to cast something. That's what we're to do with our anxieties. We're to take this and say, here, you take it. I had this experience earlier this week. I think it was on Wednesday or Thursday. Uh, Jenna had a flat tire. She calls me, flat tire. And uh, immediately, what do I do? I become anxious about it. I have meetings today. I have plans. This is the last thing I need today. We didn't budget for a flat tire this month. And, and a lot of anxiety, right? And then the blessed memory, remembrance came that we actually decided, we debated this, but we decided to renew our AAA membership. And so happily, 
blessedly, we called AAA and we cast our anxieties on AAA. <laughs> and we said, here, you take it. You replace the tire. Thank you very much. Well, that's a silly example, but it illustrates something of the kind of casting we're to do. I just handed it over. I didn't think about it again. I mean, I still had to go and there were some things to do, but I didn't think about it. The anxiety was gone because I took what was a source of anxiety to me and I passed it over to them. This is what we're to do with our anxieties and our burdens and our worries and our cares. We're to take them and we're to say, God, here, you take them. We're to hurl them upon God. And God is inviting this. He's saying, put them on these broad shoulders. I can carry your burdens. I can carry your anxieties. Cast them on me. I'll take them for you. I appreciate what the Puritan Thomas Watson has said. He says, it is our work to cast care, and it is God's work to take care. What's your job? Cast your anxieties on the Lord. What's God's job? To take them. It's our work to cast care. It's God's work to take care. Watson goes on to say, by our anxiety, we take his work out of his hand. It takes away his providence, as if he sat in heaven and minded not what becomes of things below. Friends, we are all either casting our cares or accumulating our cares. And God is saying to us, put your anxieties on me. I can take them. Give me your burdens. Cast your anxieties on me. Now in closing, I'd just like to meditate on that last phrase in verse 7. Peter says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's not just because it's a function of pride to carry your anxieties. He's saying, I care for you. Brother, sister, God cares for you. The check engine light, the nearly empty checking account, the test results you're waiting for, the spouse who abandoned you, the background and sins you're trying to run from, the hopes and dreams that you once had that now look so dim, the things that make you so anxious and so fearful, the sighs and the tears and the groans that no one else hears. Brother, sister, God knows. And He cares for you. He's saying, you can trust me. I care for you. I know. I know what it is already before you ask. I know your burdens. I know your anxieties. I want to take them off of your shoulders. I want to put them on mine because I care for you. You know the accounts, don't you, in the Gospels of Jesus being on the boat with his disciples. One of the accounts is recorded in Mark chapter 4. And Jesus is in the boat with his disciples. They're on the water. They're going across the sea. And it says there in Mark 4 that the waves began to accumulate and the storm clouds came and began to beat upon the boat. And what was Jesus doing? You kids know what Jesus was doing in the boat? He was sleeping. He was asleep in the stern of the ship. And the disciples go to rouse him, and what do they ask him? They say, Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? Don't you care about us? Don't you care that it appears we're perishing? And what does Jesus do? All you children should know this. Well, he gets up, and his sovereignty and his power, he rebukes the winds and the waves. 
Do you know what he says to his disciples? He says, why were you so afraid? There was never a good reason to be afraid. He says, do you still have no faith? Master, do you not care for us? He says, there's no reason to be afraid. Of course I do. He's saying he cares for them. And so he invites us as the master, cast all your cares upon God. Know, brother, sister, that he cares for you. This is the last word that I'll say, and then we'll transition to our celebration of the Lord's table. There are many Christians, and there may be some here in this room, even as I've preached this message, and your circumstances are such, and the course that providence has taken in your life is such, that you think, well, it sure doesn't look like he cares for me. If you knew my circumstances, I don't see any evidence that God cares for me. It doesn't look like it. My life is hell right now. What proof do I have that God cares for me? What evidence do I have? What sign can I have that God cares for me? I don't see it. I hear what you're saying. I hear what Peter is saying, but I'm just looking at my life, and I'm looking at these rotten circumstances that I never would have chosen, and I'm miserable, and my life is hard. How can I know that God cares for me? What proof do I have? What proof? What proof? I'll tell you what proof. That he who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? You want proof? God sent his son into the world, and he was obedient to the point of death, and he died on the cross for your sins. What proof? Friends, that's all the proof we need. Listen, that doesn't explain why your circumstances are what they are. It doesn't give answers to all your questions. But doesn't it show you that God can be trusted? Doesn't it convince you that God does care for you? He sent His Son to die for you. He's forgiven all your sins. He's promised you everlasting life. I know it hurts, and I know the circumstances seem hard, but he cares for you, and he has proven it over and over and over again, most convincingly, in the person of his own dear son. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come to you as the God who cares. We can only be open and honest with you, for you know all things. So many of us, indeed all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we are filled with all kinds of anxieties, all kinds of worries, 
We thank you for this word from the Apostle Peter under the inspiration of your spirit that you give grace to humble people and that you invite us in humility, forsaking pride, to cast all of our anxieties, all of our burdens, all of our worries on you. And you assure us that you care for us, that you can take them, that you know just what to do with them. We want to have a fuller and deeper trust of you and that you care. We can be so hard-hearted and so blind. You've given us every reason to trust. But so often we can be like those disciples, wondering in the face of our present and imminent circumstances whether or not you care because it feels like we're perishing. Father, please, sweetly and graciously, convince us afresh of your care for us. Convince us afresh of your commitment to do us good and not harm. Convince us afresh of your love shown to us in the gospel that we would trust you, that we would not allow our hearts to be lifted up in pride, but that we would humble ourselves under your mighty hand. And as we do, we hurl our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us. Deliver us from needless anxiety and worry. Fill our hearts with faith, we pray. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.